Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the promise of Christmas. God, it's the, it's the beginning of the end and of the beginning. God, you have come. You've sent your son And he has come to defeat our enemy, to rescue us from sin and to conquer death. God, I pray that as we consider and contemplate Christmas from the book of Genesis, Lord, that we would just grow in our adoration of what was happening at Christmas, that we would grow in our adoration of Jesus, your son. And I pray it for our good and for his glory and in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning we're going to continue, uh, unusually enough, in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 4, so you don't have to turn very far at all. In my Bible, it's on page 4, all right? So Genesis chapter 4, uh, for those of you who are, are just joining us, we are doing something a bit unusual for the Advent season or the Christmas season. We're considering the gift of Jesus, God's promised Son. He has one promised Son who can forgive sin and conquer death. But we're considering who He is by tracing the lives of some of what are called the sons of promise in the book of Genesis who lead us eventually and ultimately to Jesus, the Son of promise. So, Here's here's my thesis. The sons that we see in Genesis that eventually lead to Jesus are actually showing us something about what Jesus would be like. And we we saw this beginning last week, right? Immediately after Adam and Eve fall in the garden, God announces not only the consequences for sin, but the cure, the remedy. And the remedy will be a seed or a son who would be born of a woman and who would conquer Satan. But we're told there's going to be this time of hostility between those influenced by Satan, Satan's seed, and the seed born of a woman who will threaten Satan's agenda. So if we're reading Genesis correctly, right, by the end of chapter 3, we should expect to read about some seed or some offspring or some sons, and we should expect that there should be some hostility between these sons. Does that make sense? We've just been told there's going to be some sons, there's going to be some hostility between those sons, and then we turn to chapter 4, and we're going to read most of chapter 4, all right? We'll, we'll break off, I think, at the end of verse 16, and then skip down to verse 25. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now between 16 and 25, we sort of get a recitation of the descendants of Cain who are a murderous lot. All right, They're, they're like their father Cain. And then we get to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Those are important words if you write in your Bible. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I want to show you several things from this passage today about Jesus. And the first thing I want to show you is extrapolated from what is said about Cain at the beginning of chapter 4 and what is said about Seth at the end of chapter 4. I don't know if you grew up watching Sesame Street, but I did. And there was a little game on there, which of these, thing, which of these things is not like the other, which of these things just doesn't belong. There's, there's like a comparison and a contrast here. Which of these things is different? And, and Cain is the firstborn son, all right? And this is what Eve says about him, I have gotten a man. But then in verse 25, we see that Seth is appointed by God. And, and here's the point that, that Moses is trying to help us see about the eventual promised son. The promised son is not going to be gotten by human effort, It's not going to be gotten by man or by woman, but will be appointed by God. Eve's words sound less like relying on the Lord and more like trying to force the Lord's hand. Chapter 3, God makes a promise. She's like, well, if you made a promise, I'm going to make it work out right now. I'm going to get me a son. She says, I have gotten a son, verse 1. The word translated throughout the rest of the Old Testament is translated to possess something or purchase something or buy something. It is not a word of reliance upon God. It is a word of self-reliance. The seed is supposed to come through a woman, yes, but he's not going to be gotten by a woman. He rather must be given by 
God. In other words, Eve is, is operating in faith. She believes that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, but she's got plenty of room for her faith to grow because she's kind of at the stage, have you ever heard this phrase? She's kind of at the stage of God helps those who help themselves kind of faith. Do you know that's not in the Bible anywhere? You will not find in Scripture, some people think that's a Bible verse. God who helps those who help themselves. That is not the faith that God is searching for, that he's developing within his people. God desires for us not a God helps those who help themselves sort of faith, but a God helps those who realize they are hopeless sort of faith. The seed of woman promised in Genesis 3.15, yes, will come through the woman, but is not gotten by her effort. Instead, the promised son must come as an appointed gift from God. This is confirmed by what we read after Abel is murdered by Cain, who, and Cain, by the way, is clearly not the victorious seed, right? He's, he's influenced by Satan. He's a murderer like Satan himself. In verse 25, when Seth is born, Eve does not speak of getting a seed in the place of Abel, who's now been murdered, but what? Of God's appointment, verse 25, or placement of another seed. The, the promised seed will be a son not gotten by our effort, but given by God. And, and we see this theme throughout the scriptures, right? Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Fast forward to the moment of the Christmas story in your mind when Joseph is feeling betrayed, knowing that Mary is pregnant and he had nothing to do with it. An angel comes and confirms what? Jesus is not a son that Mary had gotten by any effort on her part, but a son that God had given. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. From the earliest chapters of Genesis, the Lord is teaching us to seek after a son that is given and placed and appointed by God. What is the implication for us, church? We can't produce our own Savior or our own salvation. We are not here gathered this morning to make up a Jesus of our own invention or our own innovation. We worship the Jesus revealed to us in God's Word, so lavishly and graciously given to us by the Father. Salvation does not come to you this morning by looking within. It does not come to you by trying harder, doing better, turning over a new leaf, pursuing a virtuous life, reforming yourself, following your better angels, or any other such common nonsense in our culture. Salvation is a gift of God that comes through His given Son, period. So why are we here? We are here to worship the Son. We are here to adore the Son. We are to declare our thanksgiving for the Son of God. For apart from Him, we are nothing. We can do nothing. We have nothing. But in Him, we have all we need. Christmas is not about a bunch of gifts. It's about a gift, and His name is Jesus. The second thing that I want us to see through the lens now of Abel in this text, is that the promised son is going to be a shepherd who offers an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. The promised son, Abel is forecasting for us, will be a shepherd who offers an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Now, now Cain, interestingly, is the firstborn son 
And yet the text is showing us that it's Abel, not Cain, who is foreshadowing the promised son who, who is accepted in some way by God. And as we keep reading, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you keep reading, you'll encounter the law of the firstborn in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And the law of the firstborn says this, that the firstborn son has claim to the father's inheritance and blessing. But we're going to discover something when it comes to the line of Jesus. There are almost zero firstborn sons in the line that leads to Jesus. Abel's the secondborn son. Jacob comes second. Why is it that there are almost no firstborn sons in the line leading to Jesus? Here's the answer. Jesus is the firstborn son. He is the ultimate firstborn son. He is the firstborn of the Father. Not firstborn because he's born of Mary, but because he's the eternally begotten son of the Father. There's never a time that the Son of God did not exist. And this eternally begotten firstborn son of the Father came and he condescended. He condescended. He came down to be born as a man so that he would be the ultimate firstborn, not just of humanity, but of all creation, that he would be the firstborn from the dead so that in him we could have life. Why? Because he has the authority as God the Son to give us all that he has. So it's no accident that that Abel is a secondborn son, pointing us to the firstborn son. And what is he? He's a keeper of sheep, verse 2. Now, do you ever ask yourself when you're reading these stories, like, why would you tell me that? Like, why does it matter that Abel's a keeper, keeper of sheep? He's in the text for a few verses, and then he dies, he's murdered, and then we don't see Abel again until the New Testament. Like, Moses, why did you tell me he's a keeper of sheep? Why did you tell me that Abel was a shepherd? Well, as we continue to read, what do we discover? Abraham's a shepherd. And then we keep reading, what do we discover? Jacob is a shepherd. And then we get to David. What's David? Shepherd. And you might be thinking, but, but Jesus was not a shepherd. He was a tradesman, a carpenter, a stonemason. At least that's what his father was. And that's true, but Jesus is also a shepherd, is he not? Is he not the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd? He's, he's not a shepherd of, of literal sheep, but he's a shepherd of God's people. Time and again, we would be like knuckle-headed sheep and we would stray and he would come and shepherd us to lead us and feed us and he, and he does it himself. God promises in the prophets, look, I'm going to shepherd you myself. I'm not going to ask you to just look up in the heavens and believe there's a God. I'm going to come and shepherd you from the inside. I'm going to change your heart. You're going to hear my voice and you're going to follow me. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And then I love what happens in verse 16 of chapter 34. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Do you feel lost this morning? There's a shepherd who's come to find you. Have you strayed in your faith? Have you put church on the back burner? Have you put the things of God on the back burner? Have you lost your heart for community and fellowship and accountability? And you're here this morning, Jesus brings back the straight. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. 
In Micah chapter 5, the prophet says something similar. He says that the coming son will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Do you lack peace with God this morning? The way to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ the shepherd. And so we read in Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, that even the wise men see Jesus as a ruler who has come to do what? To shepherd his people. Although Adam and Eve fell, a shepherd's son would come and restore the connection and make peace between people and God. Jesus says it this way in John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch, snatch them out of my hand. How is this possible? It's possible because like Abel, Jesus offered the firstborn as an offering that was accepted by God. Did you see that, that, that Abel offered the firstborn of his flock to God and it was accepted by God? You say, well, how did Jesus offer the firstborn of his, of his flock to God? He offered himself. See, the difference between Abel and Jesus is that Jesus is the offering. Jesus offered himself because he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, John 10, 11. You see, they both offered their sacrifices in faith. Hebrews eleven four tells us that Abel believed God, that he was believing that God would send a son to forgive his sin. And, and Jesus believed in God as well. Even though he is God, he's believing the Father as he goes to the cross. That what? That he would raise him from the dead on the third day. That he would vindicate him and his righteousness. And he would save all who trust in him. And Jesus, of course, was right. Because Jesus is the greater Abel. And Abel shows us something more about Jesus. In verses 8 through 10, Abel shows us that the promised son, though innocent, would be killed by his brother, and in Jesus' case, brothers, and his blood would cry out to the Lord for vindication. All right, he shows us that though he's innocent, he's going to be killed. Abel's done nothing wrong in the text. He's, he's done nothing to Cain, but Cain murders him because he's envious of him, much like the Pharisees and Jesus. When Abel offers an acceptable offering to the Lord in faith, verse 5, we read that Cain is very angry. In Luke, Jesus uses this story, this same story Jesus uses in Luke chapter 11 to rebuke religious leaders. Jesus is drawing the parallel for us, and he's suggesting that Cain was like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. In what way was Cain like the religious leaders of Jesus' day? He was trying to justify himself rather than trusting and believing in the promise of God's Son to come. Doing well, in verse 7, is believing God. But Cain, rather than believing God, succumbs to sin's desire. Just like the self-righteous religious leaders in Jesus' day, centuries later. And what does he do? He murders Abel in jealous rage. Abel's life is cut short, which is what Abel means. It means breath or vapor. But though his life is cut short, his voice still cries out. Look at verse 10. 
The Lord declares that the voice of Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. God is just. He will deal with all injustice. In Luke 11, Jesus tells us that Abel is a prophet. Did you know that Abel was a prophet? How many words does Abel speak here in Genesis chapter 4? Goose egg. Right? He doesn't say anything, but Jesus says he's a prophet. He's the, he's the first of the prophets. How in the world is Abel a prophet? He's a prophet because his blood, his martyrdom, his death, like the prophets who will follow him, shows us the tendency of self-righteous people to persecute God's son and those who are announcing his son. In other words, Abel's rejection by his brother foreshadows Jesus' rejection by his brother's. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, through his faith, though he died, Abel still speaks. What is Abel speaking to us today? He's telling us that faith believes God even in the face of death because faith believes that God will provide a son to conquer death. He will provide a son who is so pure, who is so perfectly innocent that catch this, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 verse 24 that there's a blood on the way that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Whose blood is that? It's the blood of Jesus. His blood speaks a better word because Jesus is the greater Abel. Not only killed without justification, but killed with no sin of his own. He was innocent. He was blameless. He was spotless. He was pure. He was perfect. Jesus is the son Abel was seeking. And the shedding of Jesus' blood, in that shedding of blood, Abel is finally vindicated. Abel's blood is answered with the blood of Jesus, proving that having a life cut short, if necessary for faith in God's Son, is totally worth it, because He will come and stand in your defense. We know that Jesus has been vindicated, don't we? How do we know this? Because on the third day, He conquered the grave. Hebrews 13.20 says it this way, The God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. In Luke 2, Simeon beholds Jesus and foreshadows his death with these words, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking to Mary, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This Christmas, church, if we see the cradle and we miss the cross, we miss everything. Jesus came to the cradle to go to a cross so that he would be pierced through, that he would bleed, and that his righteous blood could atone for your sinful life. And if you miss that, you miss everything. See, people, I've seen it all my life. Because I, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. And people would show up at the church in the Christmas season. And they might show up at Easter. And then you never see them again. And they'd like the baby cuddles and the coos and the tranquility of Christmas and decorating the tree. But we would never talk about the cross. We would never get to the need for blood. But Simeon tells us. He tells us. That the fact that Jesus has to die is going to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Do you believe somebody had to die for you? Do you believe that you're wicked apart from Jesus? Do you believe that you're a wretch apart from Jesus? 
Do you believe that you are a selfish, no good, scum-sucking dog apart from Jesus? Do you really own that? Do you believe that? And do you believe that Jesus wipes it away as far as east is from west, that he makes the difference? If you're here still trying to justify yourself, I want to take you from the cradle and the baby to the cross where he hung and bled and died to be your good shepherd. Trust him today. The death of Jesus will reveal hearts. Hearts like Cain, which want to justify themselves, and hearts like Abel, which offer their God their best in faith, no matter what it costs. And the reason that faith in Jesus makes all the difference is because Jesus isn't just the greater Abel, but he is also the greater Seth. He is a son, he is a son promised, excuse me, a promised son appointed by God to take the place of those who die in faith. What are we going to do? We got Cain and Abel. Abel believes God. He's offering offerings to God that are accepted by God and he gets killed. And then all we have is Cain and his descendants and they're murdering a bunch of people. This is not the neighborhood you want to move to. Cain's neighborhood, right? Bad things are happening among Cain's descendants. And then our minds go back to Genesis 3. But God, you said there would be a son. You said someone would conquer the seed of Satan. What's going on? And then we get to verse 25. And what we discover is the promised son will be not gotten by woman, but appointed by God. For what purpose? To take the place of those who die in faith. In verse 25, Eve says that God has appointed another seed instead of, or or more... um, Or better translated, in place of Abel. Cain killed Abel, but he could not kill God's promise. That's good news. Nobody said amen. But Cain killed Abel, but he couldn't kill God's promise. God provided a son to take Abel's place and continue a line of sons that would lead to Jesus, the promised son. As Seth is appointed to take Abel's place and continue the promise, get this, Jesus, as the fulfillment of God's promises, has been appointed to take the place of all who turn from sin and trust in him. Jesus came to be your substitute. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for all who die in faith in him. This is the hope of Christmas Matthew 1.21, he will save his people from their sins. And salvation from sins required that someone come and die for us. Satisfying God's holy wrath toward sin. It is good that God has a holy, righteous anger toward sin. Because if he didn't, where would the Hitlers of the world be? Where would injustice be? It would be eternally left undealt with. But God sees to it that though someone in this world may get away with injustice, in the life to come, every wrong will be made right. The Bible teaches us that God himself provided the only means through which his wrath can be satisfied or appeased, and sinful man thereby can be reconciled to him. The reason for this is that man is totally incapable of satisfying God's justice except by spending eternity in hell. 
There's no service, there's no sacrifice, there's no gift that we can offer to God that will appease the holy wrath of God or satisfy His perfect justice against our sin. The only satisfaction that could be acceptable to God and that could bring us back to God had to be made by God. And for this reason, God the Son came to be born as Jesus Christ and rule came into the world in human flesh to be the perfect sacrifice for sin and to make atonement or payment for the sins of those who trust in Him. That Jesus must take our place is at the heart of the gospel. There are churches across this country that have tried to rip the substitution of Jesus for our sins out of the gospel. You take away that Jesus had to die for sin and that he's done it, you don't have a gospel. All you have is you trying to be good enough, do enough, earn enough, and you can't ever do enough to erase what you've already done. Be perfect the rest of your life, and you still got that one sin that you did against an infinitely holy God that will separate you from his presence forever because he's that holy. And, and for those of you who only had that one sin against God, I commend you. And then I'd ask you to pray and see if maybe there might at least be two. This is the heart of the gospel, church, that a son would come to take our place. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, after his speech is restored, exclaims, Blessed be the Lord uh, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. To visit means to take personal note of something. Aren't you glad that Jesus took personal note of your need? He came down personally to do something about it. To redeem is to make a payment. Jesus came personally. He paid us a visit. And then he made the payment when he went to Calvary's cross. When Anna sees Jesus at the temple, we read in Luke 2.38 that he began to give thanks to God and to Excuse me, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for what? The redemption of Jerusalem. Church, the gospel is good news because Jesus came to take the place of sinners. Living the life we should have lived and didn't, dying the death we deserve to die and don't have to because he conquered it in his resurrection. This is not some crazy boneheaded out there theory. It is the bedrock of the gospel. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we're healed. Again, in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, we read this, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is good news. The miracle of God with us is possible because God the Son came to take the place of everyone like Abel who dies in faith. And to die in faith, this morning some of you don't yet have faith in this God. To die in faith is to stop looking at yourself or to yourself for salvation and instead begin a whole new life of calling upon 
Christ, calling upon the name of the Lord and letting Him be your Savior. Which is our final point. Verse 26, we read that a son was born to Seth. Seth wasn't like Abel murdered, but the line of sons continues. And when the line of sons continue, who isn't like the line of sons that proceed from Cain, what happens? People begin to call upon the name of the Lord, praise God. And here's what I want you to see. It's our last point. It's simple. The birth of the promised son will lead people to call upon the name of the Lord. And this morning, some of you need to call upon the name of the Lord. In verse 26, we read a a son was born to Seth and the sons of Cain we know are a vicious bunch and Abel has died and it seems there's no son around to go to war against the seed or offspring of Satan. There's no son through whom God will be able to keep his promises and then Seth is appointed in Abel's place and he has a son and people start looking up. And his son's name is Enosh, which means man or person. It's like there's a new lease on humanity. There's a new opportunity for human beings to be human beings as God intended. And what happens in verse 26? People began to call upon the name of the Lord. God keeps and continues his promise despite Abel's death. And people begin to look to the Lord for salvation. They they call on his name. What in the world does that mean? It means they call on his power. They call on his authority. They call upon Him as as the only Savior, acknowledging that only God can save. Hope for a a different sort of humanity or a, a renewed humanity is kept alive through this unlikely sequence. I want you to pause for a minute and get out of this sermon point and just go back over the whole sermon for a second. What have we seen? God continues His promise through a murdered son, Abel. A given son, Seth, and a born son, Enosh. Can you think of a son who's given, born of a woman, murdered in jealous anger by his brothers, who leads people to call upon the name of the Lord? His name is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Abel. He's the greater Seth. He's the greater Enosh. He was born and given and murdered so that we might see that we should have been the ones hanging on the cross, but He came to hang for us and conquer death on the third day such that we too might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Genesis is teaching us in the first chapters of the book to look for a particular son, and his name is Jesus. He is the ultimate son appointed to take the place of those who die in faith. He is the son who gives birth to a renewed humanity for all who freely and gladly call upon the name of the Lord, because he is, as the angels announced to the shepherds in the fields near Bethlehem, he is Christ the Lord. As Christ, He is the appointed, reigning, and everlasting King of all. As Jesus, He is the perfect man and the perfect sacrifice. And as the Lord, He is God, a King that even death could not hold, and He proved it in His resurrection. Jesus is the Lord. He is God the Son who came on a rescue mission, and all who call upon Him now will have joy and life everlasting at His return. 
Jesus is the Satan-conquering, sin-forgiving, death-destroying Son. Church, the shepherd's Son has come. He has offered Himself as the acceptable sacrifice. He has been killed but vindicated in His resurrection, and He has come to take the place of all who, take, who call upon His name. So this morning, if you know Him, serve Him and announce Him to any who will listen. And if you don't know Jesus, why not be like the people who were around when Enosh was born? Why not be like the people who look around and go, you know what, we've been trying to make our own way. We've been trying to do it in our, uh, in our own strength. We've been trying to have it our way, like at Burger King, and it's not going very well at all. Why don't you see the plain truth? It's as plain as the mirror in front of your face when you wake up in the morning staring back at you. We have no hope in ourselves, but we have every reason to hope upon hope in the Lord. Call upon Jesus. He was promised prophesied all the way back in Genesis. He's come and done exactly what we would expect. There's no reason to doubt him. Call upon the name of Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31, and you will be saved. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for making it so plain. God, we thank you that we can see Jesus in Genesis And God, we can see ourselves in Cain, trying to justify ourselves, trying to be good enough on our own strength and our own merit. And God, we recognize that we can't be. And we thank you that we don't have to be. God, anyone in this room who knows that they're still guilty and bearing the condemnation that comes with sin, God, it can be taken today by faith in Jesus. I pray that you would draw men and women to yourself for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.